we have been studying the book of Colossians. I'm going to read Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, just for those of you who are new. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossians. They've bought into some heresy. Um, And Paul begins by quoting a hymn. He might have written it, or it might have already been uh, sung in the early church. But it is lifting up Jesus Christ. It's a creed and a hymn, lifting up who Jesus is. And we have been looking at it verse by verse for quite some time. And today we're going to look at verse 19. But let me read the whole thing. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then we're going to look at this verse. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and next week we'll look at, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, our verse today, verse 19, is very similar to another verse in chapter 2. 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What's it saying? Jesus is human and Jesus is God. Our, our, uh, Our formula for understanding the Trinity is God is one in essence, three in person. But let's take the second person of the Trinity and analyze him. He is one in person, two in nature. 100% God, 100% man in one person. All right? Let's look at the 100% human. Jesus was born the way all babies were born. Uh, in spite of the song Silent Night, it wasn't all calm and all bright. You, you read that or you sing that hymn and you think, um, no crying. It was a wonderful experience. No, it wasn't. There was blood. There was crying. It was cold. It was in a barn, right? He came into the world the way all babies are born. Jesus, when he grew up, he became tired. He had to ask a woman at the well for a drink of water because he was thirsty. On the cross, you could say one of the things that killed him was thirst. He was dying of thirst. He cried out, I thirst. He fell asleep in the back of a boat in the raging storm. Everybody else thinks uh, they're going to drown, and he's sleeping because he's so exhausted from ministry. He wept at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. Even though he was going to raise him from the dead, he still wept. His heart broke, really broke, when a friend of his betrayed him with a kiss. He bled real human blood. He sweat real human sweat. He died a real human death. 
100% man. Okay? But in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 100% God. Now, here's a Christmas hymn that I think captures uh, the picture perfectly. Veiled in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as men, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Deity wrapped in flesh. Now, question, why did Jesus veil his deity, the glory of his godness, why did he veil it to the degree that he did? And people ask this all the time, well, if you Christians believe Jesus was God, why didn't he prove it? Why didn't he come down and and just make it just undeniable that he was God? Well, do you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the... uh, the incident of, of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and you could say he peels back his humanity and allows his divinity to shine forth. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became White as light. So uh, have you ever tried to look directly at the sun? You can't. And his glory shines forth. And then a voice from heaven speaks. This is my son. Listen to him. Separate people. Jesus and the Father. There's only one God, but they're distinct people. And what's the reaction of Peter, James, and John? Matthew 17, 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So why didn't Jesus reveal his glory more often to more people? He would have left a trail of devastated people in his wake, right? So he needed to gradually, carefully, strategically reveal his divinity. Now, here's what I want to do. Sometimes... Jesus reveals his divinity in miraculous, spectacular ways. He raised the dead. He raised himself from the dead. He walked across the Sea of Galilee. He fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He stopped a raging storm with a word. He cast 2,000 demons out of a guy into some pigs. Sometimes he did spectacular miracles. But many times... He revealed his divinity in more subtle ways. And here's what I want to do. In the time that remains, I want to talk about three ways Jesus, who is God in the flesh, revealed that he was God. And it all has to do with the word authority. Three ways that Jesus showed his divine authority. Right? So the, the first way is through his teaching. You know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And people would say it's the greatest sermon ever preached. 
If I were to ask you, what was the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? be interesting what kind of answers we would get. Some would say, oh, he, he presents the highest ethic that's ever been presented. Uh, he calls people to live for the glory of God, not externally, but internally. Um, so we would get all these different answers. But Matthew tells us what, we want, what, what he wants us to get out of the Sermon on the Mount. The last words of the chapter are this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, don't misunderstand this. You know, a lot of people... Um, especially who teach, they read books on teaching, and the books on teaching say, well, you want to teach like Jesus. Jesus taught with authority, so you need to speak firmly. That's not what he's talking about. The authority being spoken of here is not the tone of voice. What's he talking about? His audacity. The crowd was amazed at his audacity because he as a human was claiming things only God should should proclaim let me show you um, Matthew five twenty one. you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder now where's he getting that ten commandments right ten commandments you've heard that But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You've heard, don't plunge the knife into the chest. I'm telling you, you have unrighteous anger in your heart. You're guilty of murder. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And they thought, okay, as long as I stay out of bed, I'm good. He goes on to say, I tell you, if you lust... In essence, you have committed adultery in your heart. Now, we today are shocked by hearing the high standard that Jesus presents. People people say, well, who could possibly live up to this standard? And, And you know what? It is a standard of perfection. Okay, But I don't think the original hearers were primarily shocked at the standard. You know what they were shocked at? The word I. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Who is he to mess with the Ten Commandments? Right? You have heard this, but I tell you, that's the authority that they were amazed at. You know, um, he also says something rather amazing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I've referred to this verse a few times. 721. Notice the pronouns. Not everyone who says to... God the Father? No, me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Who does this guy think he is? God? (laughs) So when liberal scholars say, well, Jesus wasn't God, but he was one of the greatest men who ever lived. Wait a minute. You don't go around saying this. If you're not really God, and you claim that you're the one who's going to send people to hell for eternity, you're the one who says, Moses says this, but I tell you this, No wonder they were amazed at his authority. Because it's a divine authority. It's not just nice ethical teachings. He's pointing to himself as God, right? So, um, yeah, he does miracles. He he peels back his, his humanity and shows his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But his teaching is taught in such a way that it's not just the teaching of a prophet, but the teaching of God himself. Now let me give you a second authority that he exhibits that that shows his divinity. That's the authority to forgive, his forgiving. Let me take you to to Mark's gospel. Now in Mark's gospel, he's in in a house teaching. And all of a sudden, it's so crowded that people can't get in. So all of a sudden they hear the, the ceiling, there's some noise up there, and some ropes are being let down. And there's a paralyzed man on a mat being let down right in the middle. And here's, uh, here's what happens. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. How disappointing. Right? They wanted to see a healing. And he says, your sins are forgiven. I'm, I'm sure the paralyzed man was probably a little disappointed too. Right? Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's the question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Alone. Now, some of you say, well, we forgive one another. Well, there's a, there's a horizontal forgiveness, human to human. But every time you sin, you are also violating God. This is talking about divine forgiveness. They're saying, who, who does he think he is that he can forgive? He can say that he forgives sins on a divine level. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, reading people's hearts, that's, that's pretty good. That's a, that's, that's a pointing to his divinity, but look what he does. He asks a question, and you've got to get the right answer to the question or this doesn't make sense. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, you might think the answer is, it's easier just to say you're forgiven than to actually heal a guy. 
No, that's the wrong answer. In the Old Testament, prophets healed people all the time. Right? They even raised people from the dead. But only God, they were right, only God can forgive a sinner's sins between the sinner and God. So this isn't talking about horizontal forgiveness. This is talking about vertical forgiveness, which can only be done by God. So what does he do? But that you may know that the Son of Man, here's that word again, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. What's he doing here? He does the easier, visible thing, healing the man, to show that he possesses the, the divine authority to do the harder, invisible thing, forgive the man his sins. So they were saying, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. He can't do that. To show you that I can do that, take up your mat and walk. He does the easier thing to prove that he can do the harder thing, forgive men their sins, which only God can do. Right? So we've seen his authority, his divine authority as teacher, his divine authority as forgiver. Right? One last thing. Let's see his divine authority in worship, in receiving worship. Now, this is the Great Commission. This is how Matthew ends his gospel. And let me start in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, there's that word again, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to do that today. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he says, um, I am commissioning you to go make disciples. Well, how could we do that? We don't have the power to do that. I have all authority. I am giving you that authority. You go do this. Okay. Tied to this authority, he's in authority over the universe, is what happens right before he says this. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. It's interesting, it specifically says the 11 went with him, and he's talking to the 11, so maybe Thomas was still doubting. I don't know. But he's worshipped. You ever notice that Jesus never stops people from worshipping him? You know, there are other cases in Scripture where humans and angels are worshipped, and they say, no, don't worship me. For example, Paul and Barnabas go to the town of Lystra, and they heal a man, and the Lystronians, is that what you would call them? <laughs> they used Lysol. No, The Lystronians um, start to worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. And here's 
Paul and Barnabas' reaction, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments. Right? Did you see uh, Djokovic tear his shirt the other day when he was playing tennis? It has nothing to do with this. But the, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, idols, right, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. We're not gods. Don't worship us. Worship the true God. So when inappropriate worship is given to the apostles, they say no. Book of Revelation. An angel is revealing things to John. Last chapter, John is overwhelmed. And he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Don't worship me, a creature. Only worship God. Jesus is worshipped throughout the Gospels. Angels have the decency to correct indecent worship. Apostles have the decency to correct indecent worship. Jesus receives worship. Why? Because he's God. Right? For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If he gave us a full shot of that glory, we'd be laying on the ground. So he gradually reveals his divinity through his teaching, through his forgiving, through his receiving of worship. But when you understand who Jesus is, the fact that he was willing to allow himself to be nailed to a cross is even more amazing the creator of the tree from which the cross was made, he was nailed to. The, the people who nailed him to the cross, he created them, and he was dying for their sins. The good news of the gospel is this. Jesus really lived 2,000 years ago. He's alive today. He really died And all who see themselves as sinners and cry out and say, I am a sinner, I have no hope of salvation apart from you, Jesus, and you place your trust in him, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? Have you seen your sin? Have you seen that Jesus is God? Have you seen him dying on the cross? Do you believe he rose from the dead Do you believe that the offer of the gospel stands for you? It's my prayer that you would.